Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Laura Mooker, an ex-lawyer and award-winning poet, writer and speaker. Her first book, Love Factually in hardback and We Need to Talk About Love in paperback, is the result of 10 years worth of interviews with hundreds of strangers aged between 8 and 95 across every continent and it is so fascinating and it is the result of Laura basically interviewing anyone and everyone over 10 years about love and I just really love imagining her just walking up to people and uh, with her notebook asking if she can talk about love with them. The Guardian has described her as a fantastic nosy Parker which I absolutely love as well. She really is such a talented, brilliant writer, and I think you're going to fall in love with her just like I did when I interviewed her for this one. So I hope you enjoy, and her debut collection, Dear Ugly Sisters, is also out now. And her debut picture book, Rita's Rabbit, is out in 2021. So keep your eye out for that if you are looking for some brilliant stories to give to the younger people in your life. If you enjoyed this one, please do consider just leaving a little review somewhere. That would be amazing. And here is the episode. Welcome, Laura, to the podcast. This is long overdue and we're doing it in person. Yay! (laughs) This is just very exciting for us both. Um, Thank you for writing this brilliant book. I absolutely loved it. And um, I actually got the hardback version. Now I've got the paperback version. And they're, they're both beautiful, but slightly different, aren't they? Yeah. So this one's called We Need to Talk About Love. And the hardback was called Love Factually. And it's been slightly heartbreaking to change the title because I feel like... I have quite a lot of people get in touch going, I can't buy Love Factually. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. It's cool. And this was called something else in the US. And so in the future, I think I'm just going to be really, really firm with publishers and go, I just want the one title. <laughs> I love it. It just looks like on Amazon, you've written like 10 <laughs> books on love. It's very impressive. I, I would love to start off by just saying how much of your wonderful voice comes through in it and the storytelling and your just enthusiasm for the topic. And I know that probably sounds obvious because who can write, you know, 80,000 words or whatever without being obsessed with it. But you are quite literally obsessed with this topic, aren't you? (laughs) And you spent 10 years interviewing anyone and everyone. Yeah, it is a bit, it's a bit sad when I think about it. Uh, Yeah, so I, I just didn't understand it growing up. I think I didn't understand it consciously, but I think also there was some subconscious stuff going on. So I was brought up by my mum and grandparents and my granddad, who I called dad, died when I was 11. So I then like consciously, the story is I didn't have a romantic relationship to observe, but subconsciously I lost a parent figure. That's a really big deal. And I still will probably be processing that. Although I think I've done a lot of the processing. So I ended up like interviewing anyone. I mean, it wouldn't have called it interviewing, you know, as a teenager, it was interrogating and (laughs) and being a nosy Parker. Um, But I wasn't doing it really to be nosy. I was doing it to try and understand. Um, And then I I mean, I just, I did this with so many people. I mean, pretty much everyone. And people would say, oh, here she goes again. Like, yeah. And I didn't know. It was something I didn't know that I did. And then I interviewed, I say interviewed in inverted commas, this guy who was a farmer in Argentina who's 95. And we were speaking in Spanish. And it was like 24-hour bus journey from any plane, uh, plane, airport. And I just suddenly thought I should, like, document it. And so then I did document it. And it... Honestly, I think if I'd really realised how much work it was going to be, I wouldn't have done it. I think my hourly rate, I used to be a lawyer, 
hourly rate on this was probably about 80p. Like, <laughs> this is just like the most non-commercial thing I will probably ever do. Um, but it was really important, I think, for me and hopefully for people that come into contact with it because I just, it's it was my firm belief and it remains my very, very firm belief that we do not do relationships as a society as well as we could. Like, we put children into school to study subjects that aren't going to influence their well-being to anywhere nearly as much as relationships so if you are in a circumstance where you have a single parent as I did or you go through a horrific divorce or you have abusive parents or you go through multiple um, foster care homes or whatever where do you go and how do you get the support to understand and to process and to make the best decisions you can? Because at the end of the day, relationships are fundamental to our well-being, not only like our well-being, but the well-being of future generations and other people that we come into contact with. It's relationships are the basis of society and the way we live. And I think we're not doing it well enough in this country and around the world. And in this book, I've tried to focus more on okay, let's ignore society, or not ignore it, but be aware, and this is how you as the individual can change, or be aware of things that might you might be doing without realising or whatever, but increasingly I'm starting to get really grumpy about bigger picture stuff um, and thinking about how, how we support people who haven't learnt this stuff by being lucky enough to be born into a scenario with two really securely attached, wonderfully happy parents who are not abusive and don't die and don't divorce, you know, all of yes. those things. Because it's not, it, I don't think, I, it makes me, it's so unequal and unjust. So true. And um, when I was reading it, I did think, God, I wish this was handed out in every single school from, you know, so people can understand this from a young age. But then I also thought, I'm 31 reading it and I'm learning a lot. You know, this is stuff that we're just not taught. And I did think, you know, it makes you reflect on how you grew up. And when we talk about privileges in life, one of the huge ones that we don't talk about enough, I think, is just like the luck of your family setup. And what surprised me, because when I picked up the book, I've got to admit, I saw love in the title. I thought this is going to be just a book about love in its like traditional sense. But you touch on deeper, darker subjects, which I think is super important. Abuse, infidelity, the, the, the murkier, not nice stuff. Was that important to you to include? So I thought a lot about just like... I guess the philosophy of it, like, what am I trying, what's my obligation? What am I trying to do? And I thought of the the reader as my best friend, basically. And if I, so let's say you're the reader, you're my best friend. And I'm trying to think about what I, as best as I can at this point in my life, what is, what do I need to give you in order to make the best decisions possible? And if I just give you all the positive stuff, then I'm not giving you what I believe you need to know. And and also, I was partly led by what came up in the interviews and abuse and infidelity came up a lot, as did divorce and bereavement. And they are like interwoven and they're not, they're not always bad. You know, like mm. Morris, who was 95 and had been married for 65 years and 49 days, said, you know, he was he was thankful for grief when it came because it reminded him of what was valuable about his relationship, including the difficult bits. I was crying as he said this to me because he was so amazing. But, you know, I the, it's not always bad you know um some people left 
really abusive relationships and it was difficult and they had children, but it was the right thing to do for them. And the research would also suggest that it's the best thing to do in that situation. So it's not always dark, but I think there are some things that we just don't talk about enough, like how abusive people can often be very hyper charming at the beginning or how um, stalking in the studies is often perceived but as being hyper attentive. Oh, you're unwell. I'll come over right now to bring you something. And in some situations, that is really nice. And in some situations, that is someone checking up on you. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And, and, and it's not like, and it's, you know, there's a lot of gray and, and a lot of murkiness, but I'm not doing my job if I'm not, if I'm not telling you everything. And I haven't told you everything. You know, there's more. You can't do everything in one book, but, you know, as much as I could. Yes, definitely. It was super, super helpful. And, just the advice around or not advice but just the information around what to do if you sense your friend might be in a an abusive relationship because the word abuse I feel like it has so many there's a spectrum of abuse isn't there and also one of my favorite oh, favorite stats <laughs> makes me feel like such a loser <laughs> um, one of my favorite stats because I think it's really powerful and it says a lot about us as a society was um a, a research into people's relationships where I think they filled out questionnaires that asked them if they'd been abused and then afterwards they were followed up with interviews and there was a huge difference in the number of people in the questionnaire that said they'd been abused versus the people who in interviews then described experiences that were abusive and so in short people are being abused but don't see it as abuse and you can understand like a lot of you know, in physical abuse, a lot of abusers will say it was only a one-off, whereas the evidence suggests that's not true. Um, if you've if you've been abused once, it's highly likely that person will continue, statistically speaking. But also emotional abuse, financial abuse. You know, like there was a story, um, not a story, a real life example. I read a lot of real life case studies, which were very sad, like a horrible depressing period in my life when I read all of these um where someone locked up uh his partner and his children's shoes when he left so that they couldn't leave the home mm. that's abuse like there's no bruises but it's abuse or someone takes all your credit cards racks up debt in your name um doesn't allow you any financial freedom that's abuse or someone um tricks you into thinking that you're going mad that's abuse you know that I think um I think it's really it's not talked about enough it's really misunderstood and statistically speaking you and I will have people in our lives who are being abused mm. and I, I just don't think again like so there's this psychologist he's like a massive academic thinker in um developmental psychology so the psychology of children um and i he's called srauf i don't know if that's actually how you pronounce it because i've only ever read it and he says in relation to children but i think it relates to all of us he says if children aren't born into a situation where someone takes responsibility for their well-being then they are our responsibility and i think if someone is in an abusive relationship we all need to take responsibility for that. I don't think it's good enough to be like, well, whatever goes on in the home goes in the home, fine. Um, That's so British, isn't it? That sort of none of my business, don't want to meddle. 
And what's what was nice for me was to be able to interview people who've gone through extensive abuse and left it. And and some like one of the one of the ladies I interviewed, and it doesn't just happen to ladies, I'm conscious that I'm talking about women here, but it happens to all genders and all ages and all sexualities, and there is research on all of that. Um that she said she had a mother, she had a child, and I said, you know, well, what would you do now if you thought your daughter was being abused? And to kind of have her insights on it. And I, you know, one of her pieces of advice, and this is just her advice, you know, I'm sure there's different ways of approaching it, but her advice was, well, you don't, don't antagonize the partner because one, a common abuse strategy is to isolate. And so if you go in being all bullshit, like you need to leave that person or I'm not going to be your friend, then you're just kind of compounding it. So you need to just keep close. But also the people that I interviewed that, escaped abusive relationships did it with the support of others like with that lady her work colleagues rallied around her literally took her away I think they took her out of the country I think there's this idea that what goes on behind closed doors should remain private but that facilitates a lot of pain for a lot of people it's it overlooks a responsibility we have for each other and I think this has been highlighted in COVID as abuse rates go up it's not okay to be like oh well never mind there are some children growing up in highly abusive homes in extreme poverty who can't get their food now because that was their school meals never mind <laughs> what goes on behind closed doors goes on behind closed doors um so I I do think but obviously there's a fine line you don't want to be going up to your mates and like really being obnoxious and interfering with their relationships and you know mm. I'm so glad we touched on that because I I think you know we've all been thinking about what it must be like for people in lockdown who don't love being at home there's a lot of people out there that probably needed those chances to get out the house so yeah it's so much more to be said on that yeah. and please if you're listening go and check out Laura's work and also your website's really great for resources and yeah. extra information and stuff yeah. like that um, so just moving to a slightly different topic, um, would you be able to talk a little bit about attachment theory? Because I definitely learned about this at school and it's like one of those phrases that like rings in my head, but I actually forgot what it was until I read your book and I was like, oh yeah, that's super interesting. So my next book, We Need to Talk About Relationships, is about attachment theory. So I'm living and breathing it at the moment. Um, attachment theory is one of the most researched areas of psychology and it's one of the most influential theories of human development of all time it's massive and yet it's widely misunderstood and that's because it's really complicated so I'll give you my very short summary but it is a summary so the principle is that um, when we're born we're a bit useless and so we attach to someone to help us because you know if a tiger came to attack us we would die because we're were born basically much earlier than any other animal and were useless. So we attach to someone or multiple people. Uh, there's a hierarchy. So you'll have someone who's super important and then, you know, your grandparents or uncles or aunts or whatever teachers will still be there but might be lower down. These people in an ideal world would help us feel safe and secure. So a secure base from which to explore and a safe haven in times of crisis. They would be sensitive and comforting and we would internalise a sense that there are people there if we need them, that love is a safe place to be, that we have control over our, env our environment, that um, we are worthy of love. Uh, and they would also help us do things like integrate our experiences, regulate our emotions and uh, focus our attention. And it's pretty massive. It's like the, our way of being in the world. If we don't get that, 
for whatever reason, and there are multiple reasons, maybe one or more of the people who are in charge of us have mental health problems, uh, are living in extreme poverty, are in an abusive relationship, um, have suffered trauma that they haven't processed, uh, are die, divorce, threatened to leave us. Like no, and these um, can mean that we don't have that. Uh, and if that's the case, then we develop. We are likely to develop what is called an insecure attachment in childhood you generally the way it's measured is you have a, an attachment bond with one person so you might have secure with one person and something very different with someone else um and then it sort of changes as you go into adulthood in the way that it's measured in childhood um a secure attachment has lots of long-term benefits um it's essentially like a shield it protects you um it makes you less likely to suffer mental health problems. It makes you more likely to have uh, a secure relationship growing up. It's it's a massive benefit. Um, and if it, the so the insecure types are there's loads of different language on this, and different researchers use different terms. So I'm just going to use terms, but you might hear other terms as well. Um, there's anxious avoidant and disorganized or unresolved. So anxious is. Um, you're really sensitive to where the person that you love is. So you're kind of on hyper alert to find out where they are. And when they're close by, that soothes you. You're not you're not particularly good at soothing yourself. Um, it's like your emotions are turned on full volume. Um, and if you don't get the closeness, and I mean feeling close, not necessarily physically close, if you don't get that, then you might go into what's called protest behaviour, which is like angry, frustrated behaviours. Um, avoidant attachment is in many ways the opposite. So the theory is that if you were growing up as a child and someone got really angry when you needed them or punished you, it's quite a clever, or other circumstances too, it's quite a clever strategy to not ask for help because then you get to be physically close to them, um, which you wouldn't do if you asked for help because they'd go away or they'd get angry. So avoidant attachment achieves this kind of physical closeness, but without the emotional closeness. And children do this by distracting their attention. So in these, this childhood scenario um an adult will go away and then the parent will go away and leave the child in a strange place with a stranger and then the parent will come back and they'll see how the child responds and an avoidant child when the parent comes back will distract their attention to the children to the toys and the idea is that by not even looking at your parent returning you're not allowing yourself to get upset to then have to chill yourself out so you just distract and the idea is that those strategies continue in different ways into adulthood. So avoidant people as adults um, will, they might be in relationships, but they won't, they will unlikely to be very emotionally close. They are likely to want to be very independent and maintain their space, uh, unlikely to feel comfortable asking for help, likely to idealise independence. And anxious people are more likely to, um, if the theory is correct, stay in maybe perhaps less healthy relationships they have a lower self-worth um and dislike being on their own because they're not great at soothing themselves while I was reading your book I it, weirdly um thought of dogs and cats because <laughs> I've got that I've got a best friend who is such a cat like she with men love her because in relationships like she's always like this as well she just 
She just goes out the cat flap. She's like, bye, see you later. And they're like, where are you going? She's like, I'm just going off like, on holiday for a week, see you in a bit. And they like, she just doesn't, she loves them, but she's just not attached really. And I, I think I'm more like a bit of a dog that just needs like that sort of a attention all the time I, don't, I just sprung to mind when I was reading your book <laughs> it's a really good I really like that yeah well the thing I think is difficult about this is it's like there's so much to it and so if you can just bring it like kind of get over the rationality and bring an image like that to mind yeah you're right like cats are pretty I mean I don't have a cat or a dog so I'm definitely not the person to about this. but my experience of cats is yeah they're really really independent they're like okay bye they're like see ya later like you can I'll come back for not. a stroke yeah. stro- later <laughs> I can't believe I'm coming to this work this late in my life to be honest because I feel lucky that I grew up in like with my parents still together but that's sort of where it ends with my analysis so reading your book was like oh my god like let's all analyze ourselves more because it's important um would we be able to talk a little bit just about um marriage I'm gonna I'm gonna like dot um like go around here because there's so much in the book so I'm just gonna like bounce around but uh there was something in the book that said that marriage doesn't make you happier but we can't really rule out that it doesn't make you it doesn't make you lonelier, but it makes you less lonely. So therefore kind of a little bit happier. Yeah. So there was a study called the British Household Survey that looked at, I'm, so I got really into scientific methods and like you get a group of people, undergrads who are all white and in their twenties and usually pretty privileged and you give them a questionnaire and, and then you make conclusions about lifelong relationships. Not great science. Understandable why it happens. It's cheap. It's easy. A lot of undergrads have to complete a number of studies to get their course credits. What I think is really powerful, and it's really expensive and we can't get it all the time, is to follow people that represent, you know, a society over time. And that's what the British Household Survey did. And in that, um, they found that marriage does cause happiness, but only, I mean, I'd like to draw a picture of it, but if I were to represent it with sound, it would be like, <laughs> and that is the like act of getting married. So it goes, oh, oh. <laughs> and then it just goes back to where it was. And so Stevie Yap, who was one of the researchers on the project, concluded that marriage doesn't make you happier. However, in the same study, they found that single people experience a, a slow and small decline in happiness. And so Stevie's conclusion was, well, perhaps marriage protects you against the decline in unhappiness. But like a really big point about any marriage versus single, married versus single research is the grey. Like there's so much grey in there. So single, what does that mean? Like single and looking, single and uh, recently divorced, single and recently bereaved, single with children or not, single and recovering from an abusive relationship. Um, Does it mean single and I'm very happy on my own, I've got a really close group of friends who've all committed to living on the same street and providing each other with a real sense of safety. Um, Then there's marriage, like I'm married and I'm in an abusive relationship and I'm too scared to leave or I'm married and I'm pretty sure my partner is on their 89th affair and this time it's with my best friend. You know, like I'm married, but my partner is an alcoholic and um, hits the children. Like there's so much variety. So I just don't think it's really that helpful. But again, you can understand why it happens because 
if you and I start dating, we don't have to register it. Do you know what I mean? Whereas around the world, marriages are registered. And we can also go back in time and compare data because that's happened over a long period of time. Yeah. And that does, that. and there are advantages. There's this one stat that I love so much, which is based on all marriages in England and Wales in 1976. And the research, and this is like actual marriages, which is why I love it. So um, based on women, they found it easier just to look at women. All the women that married in that time, in that year, those that married when they were 20 or under uh, were, now let me remember, 53% likely to divorce within, I think, 30 years. Whereas if they waited until they were, I think, 45 to 49, it went down to 7%. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think it's like interesting because there's this idea that a lot of people I interviewed talked from different cultures talked about this like pressure to settle down by a certain time and this almost this sense of failure and also there's like stats representative like how single people are represented in media not great a lot of the time and yet statistically speaking like going in in teenagerdom and getting and committing means statistically you're more likely to end that relationship I love the distinction in the book between romantic love and companion love. Yeah. And I, because I feel like companion love gets a bad name. Like, I love to see older couples who, do you know what? Yeah, they're not like doing BDSM. Is that the word? (laughs) They're not like dressing up in their leathers, having like passionate sex, but they are like best friends who love each other and sit on the sofa and watch The Crown. And I love that. I love the And that's what I aim for. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I I agree. I, I like. I'm just having like very vivid flashbacks to <laughs> not not BDSM, thankfully, to um, interviewing people like Noel, who's an Irishman in his eighties, and he. I interviewed him. I actually met him recently. I went back to his home. Okay, wait, I should tell you who he is first. So I, he, um, he was walking along the seafront with his wife who had extreme dementia. So the interview was punctuated very regularly by her going, and who is this? And I was like, and he'd very patiently go, oh, this is Laura, we've agreed to, you know, do this interview. And he was, you know, there was not a, a hint of irritation or impatience. He was so, so excellent. And then he invited me into his home. So I went into his home, we had a cup of tea. And he said, you know, she's she's done so much for me. Like, this is the least I can do. And it was really amazing. And he talked about love being commitment and tolerance. And, and he felt like the embodiment of commitment and tolerance. Um, and I went and he talked about the reason I'm talking about him is that he said in the long term, it's not about sex like it probably was in the beginning. But actually, it's more about, you know, shared experience and commitment and shared values and friendship, um, which doesn't sound that exciting, but that's what it is. Um, and then I went back to his house to give him a copy of the book and I knocked on his door and his wife had died and he was like, "I'm re- she will be so happy to know that she and I are in this book. And I, oh, my God. And I was like, oh, my God, no, you're so amazing. But I did think, you know, I want, this is what I go back to this whole undergraduate questionnaire point. I think actually there's some stuff I personally wanted to know from people who were in their 
like later decades because they can talk about what it actually means to commit for a really long long time I just love that so much you <laughs> sound so lovely and I know Alan de Botton talks a lot about the kind of the realities of love like it's not always butterflies and trips to Paris and rainbows it's sometimes it's like sacrifice and sometimes it's and I think we're in this world of like individualism and sort of um, putting ourselves first, which is absolutely great in many ways. But sometimes I think we do have to, I don't know, like make a decision together and it might not be something you'd like you do by yourself. Well, also, if you have an avoidant pattern, then you might, which I think I probably did. Then, so I really empathise with this. I mean, I try to empathise with all of them, but you know, if I lived this, then I empathise with it particularly. That you're going to find that idea of compromising or commitment quite threatening. Like, I don't want to commit to you because I want to be able to go on holiday wherever I like, <laughs> or I don't want to commit to you because then it means I can't work in any job, in any time, in any place. Or do you know what I mean? Like, it is a it is a threat to the idea that you could do whatever you want, whenever you want. Um, it's a threat to the idea that you don't need other people and you, you're invulnerable. But even though like that, I found that kind of side of commitment a bit um, threatening, I think for me personally, the positives massively outweigh any negatives. And making sure that, I don't know for you, but I, I always felt like in my relationship... Um, we both have this thing where it's like we both go away for like a month at a time with our friends or, or like he's a photographer so he'll go away for five weeks I'll go to like some on some work trip and it's like as long as I don't have someone breathing down, down my neck to be like you can't go away it's like you can do whatever you want actually yeah at all times that's the whole point although I think that does change if you have children and I think that can also be difficult for people who have an avoidant attachment pattern because if your way of being in the world is to like really need your independence desperately and you might not really have articulated that to yourself because a lot of this stuff is is learnt before you have language so it's a different kind of memory that you can't access in that way then having a child is like the ultimate threat to independence and and you you might struggle to be as easy in in where you depending on who you're with and the circumstances um on how how easily you can come and go if you are suddenly responsible for small humans yeah. and I, and I think that can be very triggering. I think having children can be very triggering. And I think that's why Eat Pray Love sold 10 million copies. Because <laughs> I think like all women around the world were like I can go to Italy by myself <laughs> for a week. <laughs> but I know exactly what you mean because I you know I I have just written a novel about a woman who doesn't have kids. And that is a whole other conversation because I am very aware that I speak about work and life from the perspective of someone that doesn't have them. It's really, really interesting. Wow. We need to do 100 million podcast episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wanted to touch on something that I underlined in the book. So I thought it was so interesting and I think probably quite um, relevant for now, even with, the, with COVID happening, which was the difference between loneliness and aloneness. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love that. So I experienced this in like a very first-hand way because I used to be a lawyer and I was hit by a car and I was left bedbound. And I was going to, they didn't know what was wrong and I went to loads of doctors and it was really depressing. And I was suffering in a very physical way that felt lonely but was also alone. So 
Lonely is a lack of social support, which we can change for people, right? So like an issue during lockdown in particular was loneliness and it, and it is an issue at all times. Particularly, for example, in parenting, I'm talking a lot about parenting because I've been thinking about it a lot for this book I'm working on, that um, people who've come from difficult backgrounds, single mums uh, p- particularly who have come from difficult backgrounds, they really benefit from social support. It's really important we don't operate in a vacuum. That comes down to loneliness. But then there's this idea of aloneness, which is to do with the fact that our experiences of life are really unique to us and we can share them. Like I can, we could sit here for a million hours and that would be, I'd love that. (laughs) I'm not sure anyone would want to listen to it, but anyway. And I could tell you everything about my life and you could tell me everything about yours and we could do our best to understand them. But, you know, it it still is unique to us. Um, And you can get close, but you can't ever get anyone to fully understand what it is to be you or to live your life. And that was definitely something that I lived when I was incredibly unwell because I couldn't get anyone to understand how awful it was. And I could try and use language, but it didn't feel adequate. Um, And I think there's some excellent poetry out in the world about ill health that that comes close, but really it's there there are experiences that, that we all have that are that we can't explain to others. And that is a symptom of existing and that can't be changed. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. And we have to accept it. And to think that you can fix that by finding a romantic partner is is wrong and false. And actually it's kind of part of what it is to be human to feel that aloneness. Oh my God, that's so profound. <laughs> that is so, so profound. Like that is sort of but to understand that and to make peace with that i think is like you're on your you you kind of on a path to like some sort of enlightenment actually <laughs> because it's quite buddhist isn't it as well to kind of realize that our minds and our bodies and everything we're, it it's like it's a solitary experience but you can connect obviously yeah and also but also like we are it is really solitary but we know from the way the brain is built that we are just so influenced by others like big time like we basically come out as as pretty blank slates and we're hugely influenced we're even influenced when we're in the womb there's like research that I love where unborn babies could recognize the theme tune of the soap opera their parent their mother listened to <laughs> on repeat so we're like massively influenced by our environment so I think it's like a weird paradox that you we we are alone but yet we're so so influenced and dependent on interdependent on other humans yes well I want to talk to you about language quickly because you speak multiple languages yeah some of them are terrible I mean in the book I was like she's just conducted a whole interview in Spanish or (laughs) Polish yeah yeah I mean amazing (laughs) but do you think that's is quite interesting like the idea of love language the different love languages and the fact that you speak different languages I just feel like that was a theme to me in your book I think about language a lot. Um, I grew up, my po- my par- my grandparents spoke Polish to me and my mum spoke English to me. And like one of my favourite books as a child was a Polish book. And I'm clearing out my grandma's home. She died recently, well, a few years ago. It's horrible clearing out. I mean, yeah, it's horrible because I'm going through and finding she kept all my Polish books as a child and I rem- I remember them. And I think there was something really useful for me growing up with different languages and like 
understanding this is literally the first time I've said this, so it might come out really jumbled. <laughs> understanding in a really non-rational way that you can communicate to different people using words. They might be different words. They might sound really different, uh, but you can still communicate to people. And I remember when I was studying it at school, I found it a bit tedious in the classroom. But the moment I got into a place where I could speak it to people, then I loved it. And my main incentive to learn languages was to communicate with other people. And I think it's really influenced my writing massively. And also, like, I write poetry mostly for children. And it's massively influenced that because I hear, I think I hear language in a different way. I hear musicality to it. I hear sounds. I hear patterns. I think, I also think this, I was trying to do quite a lot of, um, making big ideas accessible in this book and quite a, some, a lot of them are very big and sometimes like complex and sometimes emotionally difficult. You know, I didn't want language to get in the way. I wanted to facilitate that. So I rewrote it. I mean, so, so many times. And now that I'm doing other books, like I have to, I have to think like, am I being an absolute pedant? Like, does my editor hate working with me? And, but I'm, I go back and say, I'm really sorry but I just don't think that the this sentence placement in this paragraph doesn't sound right, like from a rhythmic point of view. You're a writer. But I do think it's really important. I think language can facilitate understanding or be a barrier. And I think to get it to facilitate, you have to do a lot of work. Like there's, And I think academics are not very good at it. They have a lot. They have like 20,000 different words for the same thing. Their research journals are just laden with words that most normal human beings can't say, let alone understand. And I think being a lawyer was really useful because it gave me a massive tolerance of reading long turgid. That's what really annoys me about contracts is I'm like, <laughs> why have you written it in ye olden language when... <laughs> I'm going to get screwed over because I don't understand this word. Like, just say, like, you know, we'll pay you on time. <laughs> like, I don't get it. But there, so, and what was interesting for me was writing this, having been a lawyer, when I sat at a desk, I used to, like, sit in a lawyer posture and I used to go into lawyer zone. And lawyers, like, lawyers aren't writing things on the most part so that they sound nice, you know? They don't care, really, if it's an enjoyable read they care about protecting their client's legal position and in order to do that they put a lot of disclaimers in and they have very long sentences <laughs> and you know actually that's it suits their aim I mean it doesn't always because some people like you some clients are like guys I literally don't know <laughs> what this what this is saying but then also some of it's defined by case law they're like in this case four thousand years ago we have found that the courts found we have to write it in this precise way, and it's um, it's, it's just it's just so interesting the the diff like the kind of um the story of and the parallels and the differences between the, your writing career and your career in law like it's it's fascinating. But I wanted to just move on quickly and ask you about um something that you mentioned in the intro and and it is personal, but um I feel like you included it in the book. But this I feel the book really makes the reader look in the mirror at their own behaviours and how, like you say, with language, we are responsible for how we communicate in the world. It's not just a soulmate is going to show up and poof, you <laughs> never have to try and be a good person in a relationship. It just happens. And you mentioned in the intro that your current husband 
They're just like current. Your husband, <laughs> <laughs> who you've been with for ages and sounds like an, an amazing person from the acknowledgements as well. Um, he was your ex-boyfriend. Yeah. So did writing this book change you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we got together um, at law school. I lunged several times and he rejected me and it was quite awkward. And then eventually we got together and then we broke up and I broke up with him. And we had a sabbatical, we call it, for I think five years. And then I was really unwell, like hit by car, blah, blah, awful, awful. And then he like, <laughs> it's just so weird to talk about because it feels so far away, but it's also so fresh. Do you know what I mean? And then he wanted to, well, we, but sort of mostly he, wanted to go back out. And I don't think I was very nice to him. And he was pretty, like, insistent. And I remember feeling incredibly humbled because before all of this life misery happened for me, I could be the person who was like, I'm just going on holiday for a week. Bye. I could be the cat. And that was alluring and it was you know, powerful and successful and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I wasn't powerful or successful. I was like a, actually a vegetable. Like I couldn't, I was useless. I really was objectively useless. All I really had going for me was maybe a tiny bit of humour. Um, and yeah, he was there. And it was really humbling um, to experience that. And so having like researched this quite significantly before then and then also this book kind of got me through that period because I'd be going to hospital and listening to the, the interviews and I wouldn't be in hospital anymore I'd be in Argentina or whatever and it was really joyful um I came to reflect on what I did that was unhelpful and there were so many things that I did that was unhelpful so like I noticed for example I had a pattern and I feel terrible now about the people I did this to, really. Um, I had a pattern of being very adept at finding the negatives in the people that I dated. So I would have a pattern of idealising, which I think everyone does. And I think that we're biologically programmed to do, frankly, to keep us surviving. Um, so everyone does it. It's well talked about in literature and science. You know, I could tell you all about the brain's activity in this period. And so I would idealise and then I would just close down and find problems with people I dated and it took a long time for me to realize that 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 wasn't about the problems in the people I dated it was about me finding the problems mm. and it was a self-protective measure I think because I had learned as a result of being bereaved that you can't trust love because people leave you because when you're a child I don't think it's and and as an adult it's not always easy to to process a death as you know, someone dying. I mean, obviously some deaths are suicides, but, you know, in a death that wasn't someone's choice, although you could argue, you know, people often are hugely depressed when they commit suicide. So to what extent is that a choice? But people die, not always as a choice, but it can feel like they chose to leave you or that you've been left or, you know, I don't know what it felt like. I, d I have no idea, but I, I know that uh, I think a repercussion for me was that I found relationships, both something i desperately wanted but was also very very scared of and repelled by so it's a bit complicated that said I know scientifically there's no way of verifying that because the only way to really know is for us to go back in time and me to do an adult attachment interview which I have been you know conducting for this book I'm working on and like we've got some scenarios in this 
book where people are secure now, but don't think they have been. And, you know, we can hypothesize. I think it speaks to like us as humans. Like we come from places, we all have stories. And some of those stories are false stories that we tell ourselves. And some of them are stories that we are trying to explore, but we can't ever know the truth. Because in that case, my grandpa and now my grandma, who were a big role in, in bringing me up, they're both dead. And so there's and there's knowledge that goes with that, you know, but but for others also, some of their parents or caregivers have had such horrendous times that their way of being in the world is just to not speak about things or to block things off. And in that scenario, you know, when you're trying to put your story together, there are chunks of the story that you can't get. And so, you know, I can tell you this story. I think I was avoiding. I think I'm now secure. Yay. But, and I think this book was an enormous part, like a phenomenal, massive, massive part of that. But also, so was like the health misery. But, Sometimes we we just don't know and we have to be comfortable with not knowing. And it's not nice. I Not knowing is a bit annoying. <laughs> God, that's fascinating and just so amazing that this book is such a part of your story overall. And like that's why I think it really, the reader really is quite inspired to go on their own journey. Like I, I really have dug deep into things that I hadn't really thought about because of your book. And it's super interesting. And for some, and like you say, it is a bit frustrating when you see gaps and you're like, oh, I can't, there's not a bit in the story for me to like justify that behavior. So maybe I just need to kind of try and change or look at it and not be too hard on myself. So there's a difference between thinking about the cause in terms of I find negatives in people that I date. And that is because I lost some are very important and therefore I think love is dangerous versus. I find negatives in people I date. I don't know what was the time and place cause of that, but I'm pretty sure that the motivation behind it, I like the cause in motivation is a fear of trusting someone because they'll let you down because that's what yes, I've learned. Yes. And so, isn't fear like the overall yeah. <laughs> thing, like elephant in the room, yeah. all of these things. Um, yeah. But yeah, that is amazing. And honestly, I could talk to you for hours. Um, but my last question really was just about how how do you think we can normalise what actual love is kind of in popular culture moving forward. I know you've got an amazing quote by Richard Curtis on the front cover, by the way, and he, I think his films are so lovely and make me feel so loved up, especially around Christmas time. But you do write a, a, in the book about kind of Hollywood and they have a lot to answer for. <laughs> like they are, they have really warped what love is, I think, in, in our minds as young women, especially. If I had more time, <laughs> one thing I want to do, but I don't, don't know if I'll ever do it, but you can do it on your own, is listen to song lyrics or watch perfume adverts and and take a cynical approach. So there's this guy called Paul Hollander who spends most of his time um, researching communist politics and in writing about romantic love, he said it's actually incredibly similar to communist propaganda because essentially what we're doing, people use it, people use. So we talked about romantic love and companionate love, right? You don't see a lot of companionate love in perfume adverts. <laughs> you don't see that in song lyrics. You don't really see that that much in rom-coms. What often happens is it's about the angst and presumably because people like Noel 
don't feel the drive to write something about it because he doesn't need to process it. You know, like I've tried to write, I've written a wedding poem. It was really hard because it's much easier to write about difficult things. Um, And a lot of, and everyone has like angst, love angst, and everyone has felt that intoxicating high. And that's, and that is what permeates popular culture, you know, and not just for adults, but for children. I think it's changing, but there was a study by sociologists that looked at, um, films of a general audience rating in the US so basically you over here uh over a 15 year period that grossed over 100 million and they found that like romantic love and usually falling in love at first sight was the main theme in 75% of them and it was a secondary plot in 85% and only 15% didn't have romantic love and friendship is basically treated as like a comedy subplot so i think we need to be conscious of what what's being fed to children um I do think it's changing but people's children still watch the old stuff and also there are generations of people who grew up on the old stuff so I interviewed this excellent person from Phoenix Arizona who said girls grow up watching Disney and expecting a prince and boys grow up watching porn and expecting a threesome (laughs) Uh, so I think I think so in this has been a really rambly answer but in answer to your question Remember the, the the romantic and the companionate, like perfume advert. I, I get angry about it. I watch it and I'm like, you're selling me something that the evidence very robustly demonstrates that in the vast majority of cases does not last. And you're selling it to me to sell your product. Get out of my face. So I just don't like adverts. No, <laughs> I, I think this is such a good note to end on for people listening to just in general not even the perfume ads necessarily all hollywood but like even the instagram scroll and people can end up late night googling like (laughs) am i actually in love because you know we're not um buying each other flowers every night like we used to but actually the love has just evolved and the argentinian farmer that i interviewed said it's not about the big things it's about the little things relationships are like crops you need to cultivate them as you would your crops and i think that's right it's not it's not about the big things it's about everyday unglamorous acts of kindness and support and listening I love that I love that and that's so true for friendships as well isn't it it's the mundane chat that is a signal of your of your closeness but Laura thank you so much I knew this episode was going to be a bit longer and a bit more just having it out and talking about all the different things in the book it's incredible go and buy a copy if you're listening because I just know that you'll learn something new but also learn something new about yourself which is what books are um, meant to be for so thank you so much thank you for having me 